Hi everyone, it's Stu here, your dulcet-toned podcast host. Are you tired of ads interrupting your favourite true crime podcast? British Murders, of course. I mean, who needs a 60-second detour when you're in the midst of an immensely well-told story? The irony of this being an ad isn't lost on me, but I wanted to let you know that you can listen to British Murders completely ad-free by signing up for a Patreon membership. For as little as £3 per month, you'll get early access to ad-free episodes as well as a heap of other benefits. I've got a fair few bonus episodes you can sink your teeth into and every Monday I drop a new episode of the British Murders Weekly Journal. If you enjoy exclusive giveaways, my Patreon has those too. Head to patreon.com slash British Murders and choose either my OBE or KBE slash DBE tier to rid yourself of those pesky adverts. Plus, you'll be helping support your favourite podcast so that I can offer you even more content going forward. I'd say that I'll shut up now, but you've got the rest of the episode to listen to. Back to you, Stu. You are now listening to British Brothers, the True Crime Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast that focuses exclusively on British murder cases with a look at serial killers and sometimes horror movies when I'm in the mood. My name's Stuart Blues and this week I have a very special guest with us for a chat. He's a former Metropolitan Police Officer. He spent half of his 30-year career as a Scotland Yard detective, spent time investigating some of Britain's worst murder cases, including the killings of over 100 victims. His first published book, Murder Investigation Team, I've got it here, if you can see on the video, How Killers Are Really Caught, came out today, and it's genuinely one of the most detailed true crime books I have ever read. Please welcome to the show, Stephen Keogh. Welcome, Steve. Hi, Stuart. Thank you for having me. Pleasure having you on. What I want to do before we get into your illustrious career and the fantastic book, as I've mentioned, I like to give my guests a bit of an icebreaker question. So here's your question, courtesy of a Google search. If you could have any superhuman power, what would it be and why? Oh, wow, that's a good one. Do you know what? I've got this weird thing where I'm always dreaming that I could fly. So <laughs> it probably have to be that. It, and also as well, current prices for planes, it, that would actually be quite a, a useful one to have, wouldn't it? It would petrol. be handy with the Yeah, fuel. fly. Definitely fly. Yeah, interesting. I don't have an answer myself. I'm more interested in your answer, to be honest. Yeah, I don't think there is a right answer, is there? It's quite a personal yeah. thing, isn't What it? I was going to ask you, I was going to ask you the old classic question of what's your opinion on nature versus nurture, but I know in your book you kind of mentioned that it's impossible to have a viewpoint on that, really, because you just there's no way anyone yeah. can know. And also as well, I'm, not, I'm, I'm definitely not an expert, and I'll say that in the book. I'm not a psychologist, I'm not a psychiatrist. Um, I know people and I know how they act, but deep down their workings and, and what actually drives them. Yeah, something I try and steer, with, steer for, away from. Yeah. So let's start with your upbringing then. Where are you from originally? I'm a South London boy, born and bred, um, and then that's where I worked as well. So, yeah, that was that was interesting. I, I, I got posted as a 20-year-old to the area where I went to school, and I went to quite a rough school. So <laughs> can you imagine... I was bumping into some people that um, I, I knew from a previous life, which was interesting. Did that sort of character test help you on your way to becoming what you became career-wise, meeting these interesting youths? 
It did. I mean, it helped me in, in as much as I, I I knew the area, I knew the people, and I, and I could I could spot a wrong and a mile away because um, I grew up with them. Um, but yeah, it's definitely character testing putting you putting you in the area that you grew up. Is it an advantage, especially when you're in the Met down in London? In it, is it an advantage coming from London? Do you think people find it easier than someone who say would come from the north or from anywhere else in the country? Yeah, I mean, for me, there was a couple of things. So just purely practical wise as a police officer you need to get around quickly you need to you get your you answer calls to certain streets i knew the area mm. so that's half a battle so i could get there quickly i haven't got to stress about that and i and i knew the people so um like i say if i if i was to stop someone driving a car for instance and i got talking to them i would have a good understanding either consciously or subconsciously of how they're reacting to me? Are they are they acting normal? Or are they are, is, are they talking in a funny way, etc.? Mm. Because because I because I knew these people, I grew up with them, um, and I would imagine that we more that's a barrier you need to get over. I'm not saying that you you couldn't get over it, but I just had a bit of a head start. I think is there much of a local sort of whether it's banter or whether it's more serious? Because up here. Yorkshire's split into north, east, south, west. Is it similar in London where the, the south Londoners, you know, take the mickey out the north Londoners or the west and east? Is there a bit of a divide as far as where you're from within London? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. There's a, I mean, there's a, when, you, when you're a youngster and you're out in, you're a south London boy and you're out in uptown in the West End, it's a well-known fact that the black cab drivers don't like coming south of the river. <laughs> so it's a... <laughs> yeah we don't do south um yeah no there is definitely and i i, I went I, most of my time i spent south london um and then when i got promoted to a detective sergeant i worked in the east end and again that's completely different and you do it's just little subtleties that you, you like language use it's just little things that you, you kind of pick up on um and i always get this feeling when i come south of the river it's like i'm home and i feel relaxed <laughs> most definitely is it as rough as they say in the east end you know, we see the gangster films like Lock, Stark and Snatch and all this kind of stuff, and it's all these East End gangs. Funnily enough, it's not really... When it comes to gangs, East End has them, but it's definitely not the worst place. Um, South London, sort of around Lambeth and uh, Southwark, sort of Peckham and Brixton Way, have it much worse. But East, the East End, it's, it's, it's a weird place because it's, it's poor living cheek to jail, just literally on each other's doorsteps with, with rich it's a funny old place, really. Yeah, I can imagine that's a cause of frustration. It's similar how you can go from up here from an affluent place to such a deprived area, and then you got gentrification and all that kind of stuff. What did you actually want to be, though, when you were growing up? Did you have aspirations of becoming a police officer? No. When, when, I, when I left school, I did A-level accountancy, and I thought, well, I quite enjoy this. I might, I might look at this as a, as a career, a bit of money in it. So I left school and I started to train as an accountant. Um, very quickly, I realised it wasn't me. It was it was dull, <laughs> dull. <laughs> I can imagine. Um, and at the time, I was I was working right at the back of the old Bailey, um, the court in central London. And I, I used to see the comings and goings. Like you'd have the, uh, the, the, the the they're called the special escort group. So when the prison vans get escorted from prison to to court, and you get all the cars that follow him in es- in, in like an escort. Um, they're all specially trained and they all look really exciting. And I thought, that's much better than me sitting here trying to calculate someone's profit and loss. Um, and at the time, there's a program called The Bill Was On, which I quite liked. Mm. Um, 
So it was I was drawn to it more out of the boredom of what I was doing than any sort of long term um, plan to join. So you ended up joining in in 1991. What? Forgive me, but what age would you have been <laughs> when you joined in 1991? <laughs> I was about five. No, I was I was 20. <laughs> 20. Okay. So what was the? I'm trying to think of. Obviously, that's what 30 odd years ago now. Compared to then and now, it might be difficult to explain how someone could get into that based on your experience. But if we go back to in 1991, you say, right, I fancy a bit of that. I'd like to be a a copper. I want to arrest these bad guys. What's the first thing you have to do? What's the entry level? And are there any barriers to it? Uh, It's it's changed slightly from when I, when I, when I joined, you had to have like five uh, GCSEs. I don't think you have to have that anymore. Um, the fitness was that there was a higher level of fitness you needed then, which has been lowered. So a lot of it is it's it's a, it's easier to get into now than it was back then. But it's, I've got two children in the police. Actually, funny enough, I've got um, my daughter. Um, she's a detective in South London, and my boy is a um, a uniformed police officer in Peckham. Um, so I've seen how they come through, and it was there was some similarities, but slightly different to how I did it. Why do you think it's had lower thresholds nowadays do you think is there less initiative on not initiative but people want to be a police officer less than they used to is there less demand do they yes it's something like I, I was told at the time from the people that made the inquiry to the people who actually joined the police it was like one in 16 got in right. so it definitely was more difficult um because there were more people applying um i don't know what the figures are now but my the, whenever I hear of people applying, they most people tend to get in that I'm aware of. Do you think there's a lowered level of respect for police in modern times compared to a few decades past? Yeah, but I I don't know if that's directed at the police. I mean, now now I'm I'm a fifty year old man. I can talk about the past like some old codger, um, but. I think in society, in general, there's, there tends to be a, a less respect, less respect for teachers, for instance, than when I was growing up. Um, authority in general, I think there's a less respect. So I don't know if it's directed at the police particularly, but but there definitely is less respect. Yeah, I think I think like I say it's a societal issue rather rather than rather than the, the police on their own being targeted. I think it definitely is. And you mentioned the authority, the lack of respect. You'll see kids sometimes, you know, you might walk past a school and the kids, six-year-olds will be hurling abuse at you. And you think, when I was a kid, I wouldn't have dared. No. You know, no. You think if an adult right? tells you something as when we were kids, you you would do it, wouldn't you? Exactly. Um, yeah. Now that you're more likely to get a mouthful of abuse and, and a middle finger. And- yeah, Absolutely. So you joined the police, 1991. Before we skip forward to 2002, which is a big kind of jump in your career based on what I've found out on your website there, what were the first things you were doing? Were you just being a policeman roaming the streets? Were you part of a unit? What was your first sort of role within the police? So I did what most police officers do, and I did some time on the street in uniform, and I did about five years of that, which I enjoyed. Um, and when I joined the police, I never expected uh, my intention wasn't to be a detective. I actually, I actually fancied being a dog handler. That, that's, that looked like a, a good life to me. But what I realised quite soon on is what I enjoyed doing was 
nicking people, arresting criminals. Um, so if you're going to do that, you kind of, and certainly back then when I, when, when I first joined, you kind of gravitated towards more CID. So what, what would tend to happen is you would get a bit of a reputation for arresting people and you'd get an invite to go and apply for what's called the crime squad. And the crime squad back then, essentially it was like a drug drug squad that most of the work they were doing would be targeting uh, drug dealers. And then once you're on there, you're, you're kind of then on a bit of a, a ladder to becoming a detective. So, that, so I did that in about 2000, no, about 1997, 98. And then by 2000, I was a, I was a DC, a detective constable. You mentioned there with regards to your arrest record gets noticed. Hmm. Do people try and trick that system ever? So they would arrest people for things that aren't necessarily something that they should be arresting for to try and get themselves noticed. Has that ever happened? No. Well, certainly I, I can only talk about back then and you would have got a name for yourself the other way if you were, if you were right. just arresting people for the sake of it. Um, <laughs> you wouldn't have been popular because what you'd be doing, you'd be, you'd be clogging up the system with, with crappy arrests. Right. Um, it was more you, you people knew what you were up to people if you were arresting if you were arresting burglars uh, drug people with large amounts of drugs on them weapons whatever it was that's what got you noticed not 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 numbers of arrests the quality of them okay that makes sense yeah so i'm just interested and you can only speak from your experience of course it, it may have changed now perhaps you, your kids may correct you or me if, if we're wrong on this but when you arrest someone i imagine there's a lot of paperwork involved so you bring someone in, say you've got someone banged to rights, they did this, we know, we know you did it, you've got everything for them. What actually is the paperwork that you would fill in initially? Yeah, so when I first joined, uh, so, like, people kept saying we're going we're we're to reduce the, the paperwork, the red tape, and it hasn't. It's just got worse and worse. <laughs> so I, what, what we could do is we could arrest someone we could bring them in. You'd get them booked into into. So you, w- when you first arrest someone, you take them into what's called the custody area, and there was a sergeant there, and you have to t- you have to explain to him why you've arrested that person, what the grounds were, and then the sergeant will say whether or not the person will be detained. Um, I mean, ninety nine point nine percent of the time they will be detained, but they will they'll ask you questions, and if they don't feel you've you've got the necessary necessary grounds, they'll say, "Well, I'm not I'm not going to detain this person." Um, so that's the first thing you do. They then go into a cell, you write up your evidence, and then depending on what the, what they've been arrested for, you might then interview them. So that involves getting a solicitor, et cetera. So we could do that pretty quickly. And you could arrest someone and you could be back out on the street in a couple of hours. But now when you arrest someone, that's it. That's your, that's your tour of duty over because um, what, what's, what, what's happened now is, so the, the police stations have all... All the smaller police stations have gone, so the custody areas are, are now larger. So you've got where you would have had three different uh, custody areas is now into one. So that creates a bit of a bottleneck, and now everything's on a computer where it used to be on paper, which takes more time. Mm-hmm. So you you could find yourself in a queue with your prisoner. You could you could be outside waiting for two hours, waiting to, just to get into the custody area to book your prisoner in, which would never have happened before. Then when you get there, there's so much more paperwork now, and it's all on computer, and it all takes forever. 
Um, so a simple shoplifter, we could have them in and out in, in an hour or two. That literally is, your, you could be there for eight to 10 hours dealing with it, um, which isn't ideal. And, and it's it was always supposed to be that, well, policemen should, or police officers should be on the street, shouldn't they? Not, not, in, a, not in a building doing paperwork. Yeah. Um, and it is worse than it used to be, which there's something wrong there. Yeah, that does sound counterproductive. It's makes me laugh how now that we all have computers, it's actually slowing down the process. Which it does. Is, uh, it does. It really does. So, you know, if you arrest a, a shoplifter and, he's, again, he's banged to rights, yes, I did it, you've got the evidence, CCTV, whatever it may be, you know it's him. Does he get released on bail until his court date? Is that how it works? Or is he remanded in custody? So this... this it's about f- probably four different things that could happen. So first off is if, if there's no evidence and, and there's, there's, there's nothing to suggest this person's committed a crime, you can just NFA them, no further action, and they can just walk free. Um, shoplifters, if in this scenario, we're a bank to rights, that wouldn't happen. You could, yeah, they can get a caution, so which isn't a criminal record as such. It's like a, it stays on the police file for two years, but you're only going to get that if you haven't, if you haven't done it before. If you're not suitable for caution and you're looking like you're going to get a charge, then one or two things happen. You'll be charged and remanded in custody. And that would be if, for instance, you've got on your record that you've, you've not turned up at court before um, or it can't be proved where you live. There's certain, there's certain scenarios that would, you would have to hit if, if you're going to be remanded. Most shoplifters are going to be charged and then given a court date in the future and they'll leave the police station and they'll just go to court in however many days, weeks, or months it is. Right. Yeah, the reason I ask is, as this gets released, last week I had an episode on someone who, unbeknownst to police, had already murdered someone. And they took him in for questioning on a robbery suspicion. So his next-door neighbour, who, again, they didn't know he'd actually killed when they turned up at the house, had said he's robbed a clock, and I think it was... a a microwave or something from his house. So they took him in for questioning and they held him for about four hours. He was released and then they said, right, you've got a court. So he was released on bail and he had a court appearance the mm. following week. Sadly, he went on to kill someone else. Completely different to a shoplifter. So I just did wonder what the protocol normally was for bringing people in and, and letting them go on bail if they did have a court gate, um, date, for example. Yeah, most, most would get released. You're more likely to be released than remanded, certainly on something like a shoplifting. If it's a murder, then you're not going to be released. There, there mm-hmm. is no, there's no leeway. You you go you go to court next morning. Yeah. Uh, but something something more minor, more likely they're going to be released. Yeah. Question that's just popped into my head is, when someone gets sentenced, bear in mind, especially after COVID, it can take one, two years sometimes to get your trial. And for murder, you're generally remanded in custody until you trialed it my understanding and that counts towards your sentence yeah does it count from the moment you arrest them no it's the moment they remanded by the court so they go into prison okay and then what's the normal time frame between again it can vary depending on how much evidence you got i suppose let's say a standard straightforward murder i can only go by london because that's only where i've worked yeah before covid you were looking at about six months okay now you, you 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 could double that, triple that. So that's it's it's a difficult one to say, but it used to be traditionally about six months. I just can't think how many cases must be backlogged because of the pandemic. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it, it, they they prioritise those that are in custody. 
because there's there's something called custody time limits and it's it's statutory and when somebody's remanded and they're charged with an offence there's a certain time limit where the, the prosecution is supposed to get them before the court for their trial so they right. try they try and adhere to them but it's it's not as easy as it used to be yeah so looking at your sort of next big step as i mentioned earlier it says in 2002 this is when you joined Scotland Yard's elite anti-terrorist branch which is yep. some pretty serious work where you spent three years. Before we go into that, for those who aren't familiar, Scotland Yard is based in London. That's right. Isn't yeah. It? Which it's a is funny old thing. Confusing. Yeah. And then there's new Scotland it, it, Yard. It is. Yeah. Can you just explain what Scotland Yard is for people that don't know? Yeah. So it's, it's, it's actually quite a dull answer, really, because it, all it is is a bit, it's the name of a building. Right. Okay. So, um, Metropolitan Police covers London. There's, there's also there's, it's called the City of London Police. Cover like a square mile in the centre of like, around the city, but Metropolitan Police cover London. And the headquarters, um, the Metropolitan Police was formed in 1829, and the headquarters were in Westminster, and they had a public entrance at the back, which is on a road called Great Scotland Yard. Oh, okay. So. The public used to call because they used to come in via the entrance. They just used to call it Scotland Yard, and when they moved, when the headquarters got moved somewhere else, it took the name and it became uh, Scotland Yard or New Scotland Yard. Yeah, um, and it's it's moved about four times, and it's always remained that name, New Scotland Yard. So when they talk about Scotland Yard detectives, what essentially what they mean is it's detectives that work centrally. So. You've got detectives at work in the local police station. So you were talking about earlier on the, the robbery, that it would be detectives that investigate that. They're local detectives. And then when you go on to investigate something like terrorism or murder or the flying squad, something central like that, then they're colloquially known as uh, Scotland Yard detectives. None of them will work out of Scotland Yard anymore. When I joined the anti-terrorist branch in 2002, I physically worked in Scotland Yard. Mm. Um, but now the building is essentially it's just uh, senior officers use it as a as their offices. And there's a bit of training goes on there. Um, so Scotland Yard detectives never work at Scotland Yard anymore. <laughs> it's just there for news crews with the the triangular sign that yeah. slowly spins round in the exactly. Background. It looks good, doesn't it? <laughs> it does look good. It looks good. Fair. Yeah, and if and the, and to be fair to the Met, they've. Um, that's like a logo for them now, so they make money out of it and stuff. So, yeah. Well, whatever works. I noticed joining in 2002, the anti-terrorist branch, was that something not directly linked to 9-11, but was there a, a need for more terrorism squads on the back of what happened in 2001? Is that what potentially led you yeah, into so, that role? Uh, it, it was a funny one because like, what used to happen again before before everything got computerized every friday you would have um a like a, like a a pamphlet booklet type thing would come out around the met and it was called um notices and in there you would have what jobs are available what you can apply for um so i was working at peckham at the time and it came out and it, and it said anti-terrorist branch and i thought well, that that sounds exciting i didn't really know exactly what they did but put in an application not really expecting to get it because it was much smaller then it was something like 70 odd detectives now it's 1500 or something so it was quite hard to get onto and i managed to get on and so when i joined it was the towel it was it was just as 
the Irish terrorism was kind of fading out and the Islamic terrorism was coming in. So there was a, definitely a change there. And it, it started to get bigger and bigger as I was there. And there weren't any... So I joined in 2002 and there weren't any... I think I'm right in saying, I can't think of any actual um, terrorist incidents involving Islamic um, terrorists until just before I left, which was 2005, when you had the 7-7 bombs. Um, and then obviously since then, we've had a number of them. Yeah, we will come on to 7-7 to in just a moment. But although there wasn't anything, I suppose, worldwide, national within those three years that you were in that squad just before the 7-7, what did mm. your role actually involve then within the anti-terrorism branch? So it was, it was, then it was split into two. We had the anti-terrorist branch and special branch. And special branch were like the sneaky beaky lot that would do the surveillance and all the intelligence work. And the anti-terrorist branch, my, my lot, what we would do, we would do the arrests, do the searches, the interviews, et cetera. So the stuff where you get hands-on with, with, with a terrorist, we would do. The stuff where you're following them, they would do. So there was lots that was going on and we were, we, I mean, I, I don't know the half of it, what goes on, but it would, it would curl your toes. There's so much that they stop, um, and that's what we were doing. So we were, we were arresting people before they could carry out the attacks. And some of them were really, 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 I mean, you, you, they, I, the things that they were planning that we managed to prevent, I say we, as I mean, like the whole police, yeah. not just my unit. Um, and it, it, there's, there's an old saying where... I, we have to get lucky every time. They only have to get lucky once when you're talking about terrorists. And that's what happened at 7-7 is that they they got lucky there. So all the, all, the, all the good work that we were doing in preventing stuff, it was eventually going to happen. Yeah. Is it a case of the general public, like myself, live our lives day to day? There's, actually, there's a quote from Men in Black. When did that come out? 1997, I think. And it's Tom Lee Jones tangent tommy lee jones says to will smith he says there's always an alien invasion or a, a life ending something or other the only thing that keeps these <laughs> miserable people general general public only thing that keeps them going is they do not know about it mm. is that something you could kind of apply to terrorism here because you walk down the street and you don't really think about terrorism as a general public but i imagine there's no. people planning stuff all the time everywhere yeah, undoubtedly. Yeah, undoubtedly. And it, it, I mean, I suppose it's not just about keeping people um, sort of not blind to it, but protected from it. It's also there's also a lot of to do with um, it could interfere with the investigation if if the police were more open. Um, so operationally, they have to keep things quiet, and um, they tend to only really come out once people are charged and they go to court, and then it all plays out and becomes public knowledge. But in the background, there'll be all sorts of stuff going on. So terrorists will be planning things, but there are different stages to where they will get to. So it might just be conversations between people. This would be a good idea, wouldn't it? Or it could be that they actually then go out, start investigating it and start doing some surveillance, for instance, on a building. And, only, and then they might start collecting the materials they need. And then they might start putting a plan into operation. So, that, so at any one time, There'll be terrorists at different stages of these. And they may not all get to, even if they were left alone, they may not all get to the stage where they're going out and carrying it out. So, yeah, I mean, it is, it is, it is scary stuff. And it's probably, I, I don't know what goes on there, and I'm pleased because 
I, I, I spend a lot of time in London and I don't want to be walking around thinking I'm going to be the next victim of a, of a, a 7-7 because um, you have to get on with your life, don't you? And course, yeah. you can be vigilant, but you also have to be able to have to get on with your life. Yeah, absolutely. We might as well talk about it now then. London 7-7 bombings. My understanding is you had heavy involvement in that. It's something you received a commendation for, for your work involved in that, can you? Just sort of tell me, we briefly know what happened, but just summarise what happened mm. and, your, and your involvement with it, if you could, please. Yeah, so we worked on a system where we we would be on call. So you'd be providing 24-7 cover um, for any any sort of terrorist um, incident that could take place. And that's just not, that's not just bombs. It could be um, responding to the work special branch were doing if they needed somebody arrested, et cetera. Um, so we were on call and we, we worked at a, in a, a building in South London and it, it was a funny, it was a funny thing because we always had TVs on, we had a big TV in the office with Sky News. So we always had that on and, and, and quite often, um, when stuff happened, they would be, we would be getting our information from Sky News, um, cause they always seemed to be ahead of the game, but this particular morning they weren't, they, 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 obviously something had gone on. Um, on the underground system and it was getting reported variously as power surges etc but very early on we we got told no it, it was bombs and so we then were waiting to be deployed we didn't know where we were going to go to because at the time there were different because what what happens is people phone in and you get different reports and we were working on there were eight to nine bombs if i remember it was around roughly around eight or nine because different reports were coming in so it was like well where on earth do we go we had to then waited for things to settle down a bit so we knew exactly what had gone on um and we realized there were four and a colleague and i we got sent to edgeware road and we were the first from the anti-terrorist branch to arrive there and we didn't leave for two weeks we, we that was it once we got there we stayed there and they put us up in a hotel in hilton opposite and so there were various stages when we got there. The first, the, the, the first thing, obviously, is uh, the, the, the injured people, et cetera, and making sure that all the, all the victims were treated. But that was all done by the time we got there. So it was really calm. Um, it was cordons in place. Everybody sort of stood wait, waiting for sort of some instruction on what to do next. So it was really, really calm when we got there. And there are various stages you go through. So we we had to remove the the all the dead victims first from from the scene but there was the things we had to go through first so for instance are there chemicals down there is, is are, are there any um uh sort of dirty bombs etc so there's loads of stuff we have to go through you have to get a, a structural engineer down to make sure we're not going to go in there and a tunnel's going to collapse on our head eventually we managed to i think i think it took a, probably a good day or so from the top of my head before we actually could go in i think we had seven victims so we we had to remove each of those. I had the pleasure of the um, the bomber himself, Mohammed Sadiq Khan, um, putting his remains into a, um, a bag essentially. And then what we did is we then we had to treat it as a crime scene. So that involved getting it all photographed first, and then we went through. There were about eight of us um, for two weeks, and we we're just on our hands and knees, just going through. And picking up picking up everything we could find. So you're looking for bits of the bomb, for instance. So if someone's blowing themselves up, the, the the device itself is going to be all over the place. So we're looking for bits of that. You're recovering bits of people's bodies, etc. Um, 
I won't go into the details of that, but you could imagine a, a, a terrorist, a, a bomb on a packed London train in rush hour, just after rush hour. Obviously, there was going to be there were a lot of injuries and a lot of lot of, um, sort of horrible injuries down there. Yeah, so I mean, it it wasn't it wasn't pleasant. Um, it was the height of summer as well, which did, which obviously made things worse. When you're talking about two weeks down there with um, dead bodies, etc. It, it, yeah, it, it, but it was one of those things that um, when, when you're a police officer, you have this, you want to, you want to, you want to help people. It's, it's, it's kind of what drives you. So when something like this happens, you want to be part of it. Everybody wanted to be part of it and they wanted to be able to do something. So I was glad that I was able to be, to do that, to be able to feel that you know, I've, I've done something. And, and certainly when I came on to investigate murders, one of the things that really drives you is you, you're doing it for the victim and you're doing it for their family. And so we were down there, I say about two weeks and on the first or second Sunday, it was the family members of the, of the, the of the victims who had died came down. And so we stopped what we were doing and we sort of stood back and out of respect and, and they come down and lay flowers or whatever. And that really reinforced what you're doing. And you think, well, it's not nice and it's not, it's not pleasant work we're doing. But wait, but it sort of kind of reinforces why you're doing it when you when you see their families, um, yeah. And, and I, just overall, I was I was I was glad because I left in the October, so I was glad to be able to be able to do that in the time I was up there to be able to like contribute in some way, some small part. How did it affect you mentally having to be down there? No, you know, there's no natural light really coming through, and it's just a massacre. You know, it was it was weird because obviously my friends and family knew what I was doing. They didn't see me for those weeks, but when when they did, the first thing people would generally ask me is, "Are you okay?" And I I, I, I don't I never think about am I okay. It's not something I, I do. And it's only only when people started asking me and, and people kept asking me, I'm thinking, right, am I okay? And I was and what worried me more than anything is how okay I was. Because um, okay. if, if people keep asking you, "Oh, you're okay," <laughs> so I was thinking, like, well, should I, should I not be? Um, yeah. So, and, and, and I had to sort of really kind of reflect, and it's like, well, why am I not okay? And and I, I just sort of realised that, well, actually, what I'm, that's my job, and it, that's what I've built up to in my career. And so, what what never happens is, so for instance, uh, the jobs we were doing there, no no one would ever come along and say, right, first day being in the police, can you go down to the tunnel and do this? My way of building up to that was when I first came out in uniform, I was dealing with dead bodies a lot, be it because when you, when you, when I first joined, the new police officers were always sent to all the all all the dead bodies. So very quickly, you get you get used to that. You get used to seeing death. We got sent to post-mortem, so again, we can get used to seeing that side of death. And as a detective, you get, you get called to people that have died that may be suspicious, and you've got to kind of make that judgment of whether it's suspicious or not. So death was something I was used to. So by the time you come to deal with something like 7-7, you kind of build up that resilience. You're not just dropped in on your first day, because that would, that would I think, if, if, if I'd been asked to do that on day one out of Hendon, it would have affected me. But I've had I had to build up to it, so that's why I felt I was all right. And also, as well, if you're dealing with something like that, you've got to be able to switch off and deal with it professionally because you're, as I said, you're doing it for the victims and their families, and you wouldn't be any good to them if you're 
you yourself are having to keep taking out moments and you're getting upset and etc well you're not doing your job to the best of your ability so you have to be able to do that so all all in all that, that's not to say that people weren't affected and I, I think I was lucky what the Metropolitan Police were back then were much worse on and I, I think not, maybe not just the Metropolitan Police but in general mental health was it was almost a stigma it was almost something that people didn't want to deal with and there's all that sort of British stiff up a lip, just get on with it, man up. There was a lot of that. There was a lot of a sort of macho attitude. And what they did was they put us in a room and they asked us as a group, "Do you want counselling? Anybody need counselling?" And you could imagine it was all it was all very blokey. It was every everyone I was down there with were all men. And who's going to turn around and go put their hand up in, a, in that room and say yes? So none of us t- took counselling. And I know at least two or three people were really affected mentally by the work they did, not just in Edgware Road, but some of the other scenes as well. And I think the Met have to take a bit of responsibility for that because of the lack of support, I think, in terms of counselling that we were offered it, but not in a way that was conducive to you wanting to take it. Has that changed now, as far as you're aware? Is counselling becoming... 100%. Is it like mandatory almost? It's not mandatory, but so for instance... One of the last jobs I dealt with was a police officer who was shot. It was our team that investigated it. And we, the, the difference was, it was just, it was black. It was like completely stark between what, what it was back then and what it is now. So, for instance, we were offered counselling. I, I mean, I, I was offered it at least three times via email and in person. Like, if I wanted it, I could have I could have had it quite easily, and I wouldn't have had to have felt awkward. No one else would have known that I was having it, and there was a lot more emphasis put on the the officers who were investigating it, the officers that witnessed it. There was a lot of thought went into supporting them, much much more than than back in two thousand and five. Um, so yeah, I mean it's come on a long way. So for instance, on the Metropolitan Police has it's called the intranet. It's like a an internal internet, and on the very first page, if I remember rightly, because I haven't looked at the screen there for, I've retired last year, something like, do you need help? Or I need help or something like that. And you click on it. It's a button on the front page and straight away it comes up with a form or, or, or an email that you send to the people that provide counselling. So it's it's at the forefront now, whereas before it was like an afterthought. I think that's important, especially... <sighs> even if it's not your first day and you're experienced it on some level it has to affect you i would have thought just to see the absolute devastation that you saw down there but i was going to ask on a separate kind of note but fairly similar you mentioned that you when you were doing sort of cop on the street stuff and you saw dead bodies and that do you remember the first one you saw yeah, I can I can picture it like it was. I've seen I've seen literally. I mean, I can't I can't even put a figure on it. It's it's in the hundreds of of dead bodies, but the the one I can almost remember. There, there are two. There are two really that I remember most. The children I always remember. I can always remember the children, and there's and that's what there's one thing I never ever got used to. So I, I've seen I could see a hundred dead bodies, and it wouldn't affect me. I see one child, and and, and that reminds me. But the the one I really remember out of the adults is the first one, uh, and I remember a colleague and I we were we were it was called street duties. It's, it's your first ten weeks when you come out of Hendon, 
and you're getting you're getting puppy walked so you're getting really looked after and they pick and choose what you go to etc and it was a woman that hadn't been seen for a few days and her daughter had come to her flat and couldn't get any answer so police were called and we came and we broke in and 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 woman and she died and she hadn't been there she'd been there a, a two or three days before anyone had found her um so and I, I remember my the daughter said, look, she's got some rings. We would, can, I, can I take them? We we're, were like, fine. Yeah, we can do that. And rigor mortis is set in, I think. Well, actually, kind of thing. Anyway, her, thing, her, fingers, her fingers were very difficult to um, get the rings off. And my colleague and I were doing that. And um, he was sort of really yanking and yanking and yanking. And when he stood up, the skin of her arm had gone all the way down the front of his his oh, jumper that he was wearing. No. <laughs> so only would be as our first dead body. He was taking it back out with him. Um, I can I, I can literally picture I can picture him doing it, and I can picture him standing up. And that would have been thirty years ago. So be, being my point, I'm a long way of making it, but my point being because it was my first one, it stayed with me, and I do I do remember it. And the subsequent ones after that, it kind of get because you're getting used to it. Mm. They don't really stick with you unless there's something a bit, bit more unusual with them. Yeah, I think it's like anything. You probably get desensitized, don't you, to seeing stuff like that. But looking at the the next part of your career, so we're jumping forward to 2009, and this is when you joined the murder investigation team at Scotland Yard. I roll you, we're in for 12 years. Looking at your book, I'll just get it up again, which is called Murder Investigation Team. Clearly, this is just phenomenal work that you've been doing. Was that a massive step up from what you were used to at that point? 100%. Yeah, definitely. So in many ways, but one of one of the biggest ways was when you take a murder to court, it's being defended by the, the best lawyers, that the defence lawyers in the country. And if you're not on your game, if you did get anything wrong, they will find out, they will pick it up. And that really focuses your mind. It really makes so. I'm not, I'm not saying that the lawyers on on other on other crimes aren't as aren't as on it, but the the, the murder ones are. If the, if there's anything at all that that you've done wrong, any procedure that you've not followed correctly, any mistakes you've made, they will find it. And it really that really makes you up your game. It makes you do it properly. And it took me a little while to sort of get my mindset around. How professional they were. So I would, on the anti-terrorist branch, as a, as a detective constable, it wouldn't be my job to take it to court. It would be my job to do things like arresting people, interviewing them, etc. I wasn't preparing it for court, so I didn't see that side there. When I was on other units, when I was working in local police stations, it's it's volume crime, and there isn't that chance to be able to sit down and do everything properly so working on the murder teams was the first time i realized what it looks like to do the best job you can do on a crime and the job you have to do in order to get a conviction um, and it took me a little bit of time to get into that but thankfully i was working with, with people that have been doing it for years and they and I sort of quickly sort of got into the groove without naming any names for obvious reasons are you able to walk me through the first time you were called to a murder Yes. So the fir- the very first one was in I-, I worked southeast London. This was in West London. I could have furthest furthest in London you could get. And we got there. And it was a, a man who had it's quite it was a really sad case actually. It, it was a um they were both 
Indian and it was an arranged marriage and they'd only been married for a couple of weeks and he phoned up the police and said, I've killed my wife and he had, it, it strangled her and it was very, very open and shut case you would think, but it lasted years and the reason being is that he claimed once he, once he was charged he claimed diminished responsibility so what he was saying is he's due to his mental health he wasn't in a position to understand what he was doing and um he was seen by a psychiatrist who said he wasn't fit to stand trial and this this case lasted about it was about 10 years before it eventually got to court properly but yeah that was that was the first one we went, I went to how common is it to hear that defense with regards to diminished responsibility yeah it really is i th- i Funny enough, I, I was um, I was at there's something called CrimeCon, which is like a like um, I don't know your listeners will probably know mm-hmm. of it, but it's like a convention for true crime fans, and I, I was invited to speak there in June, and I was sat with there was a psychiatrist there who was a, a, another speaker, and who does a lot of defence work, and it was quite an interesting chat with him because we only really see the tip of the iceberg, and so what what I've worked out really is that. Every single murder suspect, someone who's charged with a murder, the defence will look at, well, is that a potential defence? Is it, When I say there's a lot of defence in there, what I mean is his defence team will will say, is that a potential defence he can use to his case? Mm-hmm. Um, and so this psychiatrist will go in and assess the, the people that have been charged with murder. And a lot of time we don't even know about it because he'll come out and say, no, he's fine. Um, so I think majority of people that are convicted that are charged with murder it is something that's explored can, can we go down that because there, there aren't that many defenses open to you if you're charged with with murder you've got a few you can say it wasn't me well i wasn't there it wasn't me at all you can claim self-defense or you can claim one of these partial defenses which is where you say so if if you if you say go for diminished responsibility you wouldn't get off completely but you'd end up with manslaughter which is obviously a lot lesser charge than the murder, so they don't have a lot of lot of ways to go. So the, 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 going down that route of I wasn't mentally right is something they will explore. What's your opinion on legal teams who defend killers, especially when everyone knows that they did it and they're trying to put doubt into your investigation tactics? If you didn't arrest someone and question them, you know, is that admissible? All that kind of stuff. Do you have an opinion on? The personality of the defence barristers, or are they just doing a job at the end of the day? I've got I've got an opinion on personalities, definitely, because that's that's where I've issues. The job they're doing, no issue whatsoever. Stuart, you you or me, we could be charged with murder. Some but some something could go wrong in our life, and we could end up Heard being charged first. with murder. Yeah, <laughs> but you would want to be defended, and you would want to be defended vigorously, wouldn't you? Of course, yeah, uh, and. That's right. I've got no issues with that at all, and and it's right, and it, and it's a system that that I believe in, and professionally, I it's it's the test of my job. And if I'm not doing my job properly, and someone gets off, that's my fault, and I and I, I wouldn't take it personally. What I do have a problem with is some defence barristers take it real really personally, and they act in a way that's unprofessional, and. They try every trick in the book, regardless of whether or not it's, it's fair. And they treat you, and, and they don't treat us as the police officers with any respect, um, or the families with any respect. 
uh, with nobody with any respect, really. They're the ones I have a problem with. And it's not because of what their job they're doing. It's because of the way they go about it. But actually defending someone for murder, no. Even even if even if someone is banged to rights, they still need to be defended. And it would be wrong in our system for that not to happen. I agree. If we just bring back your wonderful book, which again is out today, Murder Investigation Team. Now, I'm not trying to blow smoke up your ass here, Steve, but this... For <laughs> For me, this is probably the best true crime book I've read in a long time. Now, I really appreciate it, Stuart. Thank you. That's it, okay. It's not based on, a, just so people listen and get an idea of what this book is about. It's not based on a specific murder case or a series of murders like a lot of true crime books are. Mm. It's not even really based on Steve's career, as in I did this, I did that. I did. It's not an autobiography. This is no. start to beginning the full process of what happens throughout a murder investigation. And if I can just read to you some of the, the chapter titles here, the introduction is the introduction. <laughs> We've got the crime scene, the investigation, investigative thinking, lines of investigation, the arrest, the interview, charging suspects, the trial, what defenses people have, the jury's decision, do defendants give evidence, Questions from people that have like frequently asked questions, ridiculously thorough. It was almost at the at the point where I was thinking, "What am I going to ask him?" <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate it, Stuart. Thank you, because um, I, I did go out on a bit of a limb when I, cause I, I, I self published first, and it's being re released. Um, and I did go out on a bit of a limb because the book doesn't exist, and I, and and it was like, well. Why has nobody ever written a book about how murders are investigated? What, obviously, you've got the ones where it's, as you say, it's a specific case. And they're, what, they're the ones that are really popular, aren't they? Yeah. So it was like, well, is it that no one's thought of it or is it that there's no demand for it? Um, so I, I, I'm hoping that I've, I've sold a few already on, on the previous version. I'm hoping it's the fact that nobody's thought of it. Um, but I think there's definitely... The, the, there's definitely a, a gap in the market I, that's for people that want to understand. Well, why is this going on? When they put when they put the news on and there's a murder, what what is what is going on? What is going on in the background? Who are those people in the white suits? What are they doing? Why are they, yeah. why, why are they doing that? Um, so th- so that's the idea. So that by the time you finish reading the book, I'm not saying you'll be able to go off and and solve your own murder, but you but what you will know. You will understand exactly the process that's going on in the background, and also as well to try and make it not so. It's not. I don't want to make it just a manual of this is what we do. I link it into cases I've dealt with, yeah. Um, but more to illustrate. So if I'm talking about CCTV, for instance, illustrate a case where CCTV has been used and how it helps solve a case. Um, and I don't use names, and I don't use um, sort of. I don't use victims' names, and I don't use suspects' names, and that was important for me because. For me, the job I did was was about the victims, and I, yeah. it wouldn't have sat right for me to then go and write a book and using their names in order for my book. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So that's yeah. why that's why that's why the cases are anonymized. Yeah, um, but I, re- I appreciate your, your feedback, Stuart. Thank you. Oh, it's a, a pleasure. And you, like you say, there's some cases where you may be able to decipher who you're referring to mm. if, if people have excessive knowledge of cases, but even stuff like breaking down what is murder and the difference between murder manslaughter diminished responsibility it's almost like an i found it to be like an academic level encyclopedia really 
like if I wanted to, I I know it's not necessarily your intention because you do link in the cases in there. But if I ever wrote a script and I thought, right, this one involves diminished responsibility, let's say, if I wanted to jog my memory on what that was, I could turn to this and it would break down for me what that is. So it, it's almost academic, I think. But one of the things that sort of, so when I was starting out to write it, I never I never intended to write this book. I intended to write a different one. It was, I was setting up a business to go into companies and say, look, these are the skills within a murder investigation, and this is how it can help your company. So that's what I started out writing, and it kind of morphed into a, a book that was aimed at true crime fans. And there are a couple of um, uh, true uh, Facebook groups that I went to, one in the States and one in the UK, and I just introduced myself and I said, this is the book I'm writing. What questions would you have? And I've got a really good response and I've got 650 responded, people responding. And the best part of the question that I put out was just an open one at the end. What do you want to know about murder investigation? And I've got some really, really good questions. And I kind of, I, I structured the book to answer those questions. So if it, the, the ones that kept coming up, for instance, the, the most popular one is why do people kill? Um, which I've addressed in the book, and I've come up with my own theories around that. And that was really important to me. So if, if people are asking a question continually, if that's the one people want to answer, I have to answer it. So I come up with something that's, that's, that that's, I don't believe has, has um, been addressed in, in the same way before. So there's loads, loads and loads of questions that true crime fans would have that, that I say, like I say, I've, they're, they're in the book there somewhere. Yeah. I know you mentioned the three categories of motive for murder with the exception of one i won't go into it i'm not going to spoil it for people you've got stuff about there's the dicop or di cop whatever you want to call it the five sort of the five-step procedure of how you would approach a new investigation there's some really good stuff in there and if you think about it we do kind of overanalyze things and you think oh what motives could you have to kill someone you think oh there's hundreds like you mentioned but realistically it's one of about three potentially four so it's interesting if you if you buy into in what I'm saying, yeah, and yeah, of course. Like I say, I, I, it's not. It's <laughs> not. Opinion. I'm not saying. Yeah, it is my opinion, and it's based on. Um, I, I I like to think I understand what motivates people. Mm-hmm. Um, being a detective is really understanding people. Be it the people you're the the, the the witnesses you speak to, the victims you speak to, the suspects, every everybody that you engage with. In order for you to get the most out of them, get the best information out of them, to get, get an understanding of why they did what they did, or you, you you have to understand people. So that's where I come from. I don't come from a point of deep psychology, like is it to do with childhood trauma, and I don't even go, I wouldn't even go there because that's mm. not my field. But dealing with people and understanding how people tick, that's that's more where I've come from that angle. There's a part in your book where you mention some potential reasons why gangs kill people. And one of the reasons was disrespect in music videos, Mm. which interested me because you've got this uprising of what they call drill music and Mm. drill has its own slang. And most of these kids, as far as I can tell, they all wear balaclavas and masks and they all live in London and rap about how they've shanked whoever or you know, so-and-so is dead on the dead on arrival. Is it, are these people chatting shit or are these people sometimes genuine criminals that cover the face and sing these songs and put them on YouTube? 
what 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 you'll find is that the the majority of them are in gangs and what these gangs are um it's not just about um where people live and what color they wear they're also they're they're organized crimes they're they're all they so you know you've heard of county lines mm. where mostly stems from london where you get um gang members going out into more rural or less built up, built up areas and selling drugs now all these all the, the the gangs that you see on those videos most of them will also be involved in county lines and there's a lot of money in drugs and when you when you've got a lot of money that's where the violence comes from because they're all competing for that money so what what you don't tend to have is people coming along doing these drill videos talking about stabbing people this that the other and they're not connected with gangs that that that's that's quite unusual it just makes me wonder how stuff like that passes youtube's algorithms and is allowed to yeah. be posted well, the police do try and bring it down, but as much as as long as quickly as things are brought down, other stuff goes up. I mean, so when I was dealing with murders, so I, I think I, as you said at the beginning, I've been involved in hundred plus. I can't even put a figure on it. I think I, got, I lost count. I've never tried to count. The there's probably three main areas of um, sort of types of murder that you tend to deal with. What, what one would be domestic murders within within a household another would be mental health which is a really big one where people through severe um, mental illness have then gone and killed generally a loved one and the next is gangs gangs is a really big certainly in london proportion of what we deal with i I, i've i spent countless hours watching those drill videos trying to i mean i'm a a middle-aged white man i've got (laughs) tapping your feet enjoying it (laughs) Well, I've, I've got to try and translate. I've got to try and get a get, get a transcript of these videos. I've I've spent hours of my life play, pressing rewind and play, yeah. rewind and play, trying to work out what they're saying, and then going to court. And I mean, if we if we we can get experts um, who are far more versed with the, that, that that their um, lyrics and language than than I am, who can come along. But many times I would be at court trying to explain to a judge what what they're talking about <laughs> probably, probably badly i don't know um but yeah I, I, that is one aspect of investigating murders that i don't miss is listening to drill <laughs> i bet you loved it really i didn't i see the thing is i grew up, I, I grew up on hip-hop i loved hip-hop yeah my very first concert i ever went to was run dmc oh wow and i yeah and like public enemy and I, I i i love i love old school hip-hop to me it's not that isn't even hip-hop it's yeah. just like it's something completely completely foreign to my ears i hate it <laughs> i was going to talk as well about family liaison officers i thought this was a really interesting section of the book the bit that stuck out to me was perhaps something that's a misconception amongst the general public is when you say first and foremost their responsibility is to investigate rather than providing emotional support to the families that's not Mm. what they're there for and i think a lot of people might misunderstand that because it seems like a role that has to be so difficult to sort of marry that line between having empathy and i've got a job to do here yeah 
But f- strangely enough, Stuart, when you when you say um, the public, it's not just the public; it's the police as well. So anyway. even within within the police, there's a misunderstanding of what the family liaison officer does. Um, first and foremost, they're an investigator; they they are there to get information. So the vast majority, like stranger murders, are actually unusual. The vast majority of murders, there's a link between the the suspect and the victim the killer and the victim there's a link and the, your job as an investigator is to find that link and some of the most important people you're going to speak to are the family get an understanding of the victims the victims friends social circle where they work where they hang out the car they drive the phone they use do they use drugs are they involved in crime there's so much information that you can get from a family so that that's primarily what they're there for to get that information. So the, for the investigators to be able to identify the suspect, that's what they're there for. But what they also that, that can do and they will do, and, and it's an important part of what they do, is a family that have that have just lost a loved one are going to enter a world of procedure and the court system identification of the victim the dealing with the coroners there's, there's so many different aspects that the family will that suddenly have to be be um get their head around and cope with but the the family liaison officer will know all about that so they can help them with that they'll help them understand what the next steps are explain to them what's happening in the investigation explain the process around coroner's court so it's definitely a two-way thing they're there they're there they're, there, they're there sort of they're there to get information from the family, but also provide the information, provide information to the family. And it's not a nice role. And it's not something I ever did. So um, they tend to be detective constables. I was never that on the murder team. I was a detective sergeant and detective inspector. And it's not a role. If I was a DC on a, on a murder team, it's, I'd have to think carefully before I did it because it's not a pleasant role. It's not, it's not easy at all. What sort of training's involved? Not a lot, really. A week. It's a week's training. A week. Wow. Um, but what they're doing, really, they, they, they give you a little bit of they, – they, they, they'll fill you in a bit about the procedure and they'll have um, families of uh, murder victims come in and explain their side of it. But the real, real learning of it is done on the job by, by actually going out and doing it. And what we tend to do is – so someone will come off and they'll do their week's uh, we, we call it flow family liaison officer we call them a flow so they do their week's flow course and then what they'll do is they'll get paired with an experienced flow um, on a murder so they can see what what it what it is in practice because you can't you can't you can't really learn how to do that in a classroom they can give you the tools to go off and do it but actually sitting down with a family who've just lost their loved one and being able to you, you kind of as I say, you tre- I think, did you say you're treading that line? You're treading that line between providing them support and getting the information from them. Um, what you can't do is go in, sit down and say, right, uh, yeah, what, okay, I understand that your loved one's dead, but I need this information. You yeah. can't do that. Um, and you can't just go in and, and say, oh, I'm here for you and put an arm around them. You can't do that either. So you've got to try and get that balance right. And by looking at an experience flow that's been through that, that's where they're going to learn they'll get that like i say they'll get the tools for it in a classroom but actually learning how to do that job is is by doing it you mentioned the most common method of killing that you've seen personally is knife crime which is pretty rife here in the uk is that seeing any sign of slowing down 
Funnily enough, this year, yes. So I think now, because we've had a few murders in the last week in London, I think we're at 50 or 51 murders for the year. And if it carries on in the current trajectory, it will be the lowest for years. I don't, I don't know how many years. Certainly, certainly in the last 15 years, it will be the lowest, uh, maybe longer. So, yes, it has... Now, what 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 has slowed it down is really is a really difficult one to say because um, there is no one contributing factor. So one of the so if when you look at the murder figures over the years, they used to be more. So in London, over the last few years, we've had 120, 30, something like that. If you go back to sort of the late two thousands, so two thousand nine, two thousand eight, they were they were in the two hundreds. A lot of a, a big factor in uh, the the figures for how many people die of murder is the medical treatment they receive. So the the knowledge that is that we have now on how to save people with with trauma, knife wounds, gunshot wounds, etc., is huge. So when you're on a murder investigation team, similar to what I was saying about being on the anti terrorist branch, you provide twenty four seven cover. So there will always be there's three teams in London are always on call, and they will respond to any not just murders, but suspicious deaths, um, serious assaults that potentially could become a murder, they respond to them all. So you get phone calls to say someone's just been stabbed, shot or whatever, they're going into hospital. And it would actually be quite unusual once they've reached hospital for them to then die. You kind of get used to the fact that once they get there, the the, the doctors now, and certainly within London's uh, central hospitals, are, are so professional so so uh, some of it is from that they're ex-military and they would have learned from afghanistan and iraq and stuff but they're so knowledgeable and so experienced and so skilled at dealing with trauma victims that that you kind of get used to the fact that once they're there they're almost certainly going to be all right um that probably wouldn't have been the case 15 20 years ago so that's going to have a massive effect on on the the murder figures so do you think then essentially the reason the murder figures are starting to come down isn't necessarily because there's less stabbings. It's more our knowledge of medical side of things is improving. Yeah, that I don't know because I've not seen those figures. But what I would say, and I think it's, I think in any any issue you have in society, there's never one answer. It's never so. You, what you often say when you when you hear that people are getting stabbed a lot, well, there should be more stop and search. Well. Stop and search is one part of it. It'd have to be a holistic approach to it. It'd have to be uh, the police, um, schools, parents, um, social services, probation. There's so many different people that would have to come together. And they do. They do try and come together to try and solve the issue. It's not just, it can't just be stop and search. It's stop and search on its own is not going to stop people stabbing each other. There's so many different factors to it. And I think sometimes we're all guilty of oversimplifying um, problems by, by saying, oh, this needs to happen and it will sort it out. It's, not, it's generally more complicated than that, isn't it? And certainly mm. when it comes to um, violent crime, it, there isn't just one answer. What's your personal experience? I mentioned this because we had Dr. Shepard on the show, pathologist, and he walked us through his experience of conducting a post-mortem and the various stages of what happens as an officer being there 
present during one. What is your experience of that from the police point of view? It's a funny old thing, really. Um, when you're dealing with dead bodies, and I, I have to be careful, I, I don't always come across as cold or anything, but when, when you're dealing with dead bodies, you, you, you can switch off from the fact that it is a human being. And if you ever you've, if you see a dead person, you'll understand when I say that there's something missing. It's, I, I mean, I, I, I don't want to get all deep and say it's like the soul or whatever. I, I, I don't know what it is. I don't, I, but there's, there is something missing between a live person and a dead person. I don't know that may sound. That makes sense. It makes sense. But but when you but when you see a dead body, it's, it's not. It, there's there's something missing. That, but then that allows you to be able to be present, for instance, like at a post-mortem or when you're doing your job and you, whatever you're doing around a dead body, it allows you to do it in a, in a more detached way because you can feel that you, you can understand, you, you, can, you can deal with it in a way that you, it's not a person. And I don't want to sound cold when I say that, but you have to be able to do that in order to do your job professionally because what you can't do when you're investigating a murder or as, as Dr. Shepard, when he's doing his job, what you can't be doing is getting caught up in your own emotions. You have, you, you have to be able to just professionally do, do your job. The only time I would say when that doesn't, when I found that difficult, and as, as I mentioned earlier, is children. Yeah. Seeing children on, in a mortuary and having that procedure on them is not nice and it's not something and, and 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 i'm pleased that i don't because sometimes what you do worry about when if i was to listen to this back and you th- might think oh, god I, I sound cold and i and you do when you when you do reflect and you think have i lost some part of my humanity but knowing that i do get affected by children is, is in a way comforting because it makes me think well i've still got uh, i've not become a complete psychopath you know what i mean i've still got i've still got empathy within me because i can i i, I can feel that and i can get upset by seeing a dead child yeah um so as hard as it is it's also comforting in, in a weird way that it still it reminds me that i've still got that human side i've not lost it completely yeah <laughs> i think it would be worrying if you weren't affected especially by children yeah, it might be a case of, am I okay? Maybe I should take up that counselling. <laughs> yeah, I mean you do. You know, that is it is one of those jobs where you have to be, you have to cut yourself off. Um, but there is that danger, isn't there, that you, you cut yourself off from everything that, that's human. Yeah. yeah. Is there anything that happened during your career that really changed you as a person? It could have been an experience. It could have been a case, an issue with one of your senior officers oh, blimey, that's a good question change me as a person mm. I, I can't i don't think there's one thing I, I, i've definitely changed if you were to say that the 20 year old who was barely out of school to me now yeah i've changed massively and i think that's probably a, a more of a drip process than than a one big drastic change it's like little things build on each other over over the years don't think what about what would you tell that 20 year old you knowing what you know now what advice would you give him you've got some some good questions here Stuart once I've never been asked (laughs) I get deep on this podcast (laughs) (laughs) what would I tell the 20 year old me just professionally not in my life professionally yeah (laughs) 
the twenty-year-old me professionally. Um, this is going to sound really corny, um, but I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't put myself off from doing what I did. I don't know. I don't know if that's the right answer. To, if that actually answers it, because I look back on my career and I've got no regrets about the career I did. So there are certain paths you can take as as a as a police officer. You can, like, for instance, you can go for promotion. I wouldn't. I wouldn't tell my twenty-year-old self to go for promotion earlier, because once you get to a certain rank, you don't do police work anymore. Okay. And that is what I enjoyed. I enjoyed doing the police work. Um, is that something perhaps young officers don't realise? Then they think. I should get this promotion. I should, but if you actually enjoy the thrill of police work and arresting people, that actually might stop. It, it will stop, and I, I, I don't. I don't sound like an old gear again when I say this, but I think there's a change in society now in terms of people want things now. Is because we've got we've got the likes of Amazon where you get your shopping on your doorstep within a few hours yeah. of ordering it. Instant gratification. It, yeah, and and I, and I think that's crept into police a lot of police officers in their careers they want so i i see it so many times where they, they i want to be a detective now but i don't just want to be a detective doing local police work i want to be a detective on a murder team now it's like well you've only got two years service it took me years to get to that stage but no i want it now and there's a lot more of of that and my my fear is when people get promoted they miss out on what the the best part of being a police officer is doing police work mm. and certainly Murder is slightly different because if you get promoted to um, inspector and chief inspector on a murder investigation, you still you're still involved to a certain extent. You're not you're not arresting people and you're not you're not interviewing people, etc. But you're still having an influence on a murder investigation. But most other roles, once you become an inspector, that's it. You're not a police officer anymore. You're a manager, and you're managing people doing police work. And you're going to miss out on what the best part of being doing a, being a police officer is. So, yeah. I mean, I, my, both neither of my my children in the police are driven by um, promotion. That's probably probably my influence. They're more driven by doing the job, and yeah, I think there is a danger that some people want two things, everything too fast. They're going to miss out as a, in the process. Do you think part of that reason could be not only the instant gratification of the world now, but also? Stuff like TV shows and how they portray murder investigation teams. I'm assuming most of those shows are wildly in- inaccurate compared to what you've experienced. Yeah, definitely, hundred um, percent. Mostly, I think because the reality would be quite dull. So, <laughs> investigating a murder is about being thorough. It's about it's about crossing T's, dotting I's. It's about getting everything right, and that. Involved. So, for instance, CCTV. If you're dealing with CCTV, you could be sat looking at the same camera for days on end. Um, when you're dealing with the forensics, it, it can take days within within a crime scene dealing with it. Everything has everything takes time. Everything has to be done thoroughly. Um, that would not make interesting TV, would it? <laughs> no. So there has to be a balance between um, what's entertaining. And and what the real world is, and and it's it is geared more towards it being entertaining, and that's because that's what it is. It's an entertainment show. Um, so for, funnily enough, so I I've, I've, I was on a couple of um, documentaries. I've 
I've, I've gone on and been asked to come on and give a perspective as a, a murder investigator. And, and one of the companies read my book and they liked, they liked the concept and they took it to some uh, TV channels and they liked the concept as well. They liked the idea of a TV program that um, told people how murders investigated rather than a specific case. And they, they took it to um, markets, you know, market like re- testing like the market, test screenings, market, yeah. re- market research, that's it, yeah, market yeah, research, yeah. that's the word. And their market research was that no, actually people are more interested in specific cases oh. than the, and, and it's funny enough, because I've done, um, I've, I've got a YouTube channel and I, I, I don't put as much on as I did. It's kind of, if I'm honest, it's lost a little bit of its traction. I've got, I've got sidetracked by other things. And when I look at the, um, the viewing uh, figures for my videos, I, I, I only really talk about one case on there, a case in America called Delphi. Two girls were murdered there. And the figures for those are way, way, way above anything to do with the procedure. Mm. So for me, as a, as a, as a, as a, small, a small sample, I can see that the people are much more interested in specific cases than than the actual processes behind it so and and they've said look it's not we're not saying no forever but at the moment it's not what people are really into makes sense supply and demand i suppose isn't it that does lead me nicely you may have seen on instagram i asked if my audience had any questions for you yeah i I did get a couple i went on twitter as well now one of my friends called fern she used to do a a podcast called evidence of a crime she's since gone into like script writing i think sorry fern if that's wrong but she was actually asking about the the delphi case is that what it's delphi delphi is it delphi, delphi yeah we oh. would say delphi but they say delphi yeah. but so i, I, I kind <laughs> of said, stuck with delphi now. you said delphi and i was oh shit, i was gonna say delphi now my knowledge on this case is is minimal I'm, i'll be upfront about that but fern has been watching a lot of your videos and she says, has your opinion on Delphi changed since the new information has come out? So she says this is to do with the girls being posed, underwear being taken. Uh, and do you think it might actually be Keegan's father? None of that means much to me, unfortunately, but it'll mean more to Fern, I'm sure. Fern, I've got to be really honest. I kind of got sidetracked with Jack the Ripper. <laughs> and most of my most of my time goes into researching Jack the Ripper on me. So I don't I'm not really up to date on on Delphi um in, I didn't know that new information so that's new to me I'm sorry um and my my stance has always been I don't think it's um Klein and his dad but I've always been of the opinion I've always said um I could be wrong um so I what I don't know what new information there is sorry fair enough move on to the next one swiftly so Rose Bundy on Twitter and Bryony Daniels on Instagram ask basically the same question and that's what case affected you the most, and does it still affect you to this day? It would always be it would always be children. Um, there are yeah there are there are there are two cases that, sort of, that kind of stick in my mind. One where a, um, a young boy was basically stamped to death by his uncle. I, I write about that in my book, um, and I was there for the post mortem of that and seeing seeing a young boy on in the mortuary. And the injuries that were caused to him, yeah, that will always that will stay with me forever. And another one was the Simon Blake case, where the uh, her husband killed her and her children, and that's another one that will stay with me because it's again it's children and those those cases 
Yeah. I mean, I, I, when I say this, I don't want to sound dramatic, but I'll carry them forever. Mm. I'll carry them with me. Um, but not, not in a way that I think affects me, but it's a way that I will always have them at some point if I was to close my eyes and I could, I can see their bodies. That was a tough read, the boy and his uncle, that you, you sort of go into post-mortem detail. Yeah. That was a, a tough bit to read. It makes sense that they stick with you. I can't even yeah. imagine doing it with an adult, never mind a child. But the, the final question I got is from Tamar on Instagram, and it's quite an interesting one, this. I don't know if it's something that's relevant, but are there any cases that you didn't solve? And if so, have they since been solved? No, there are definitely cases we haven't solved. So I think we we ran at about 90%, say. So bear in mind, if, if I was involved in 100 cases, then there's at least 10 that we didn't solve. I don't th- – I'm not aware – Bear in mind, because I've only I've only I've only left in November, so okay. I've not been gone that long. I'm not aware of any that have since been solved that we hadn't. No, is the answer to that. No. How would you feel if one of your unsolved cases that you put all your effort into, yeah, did then get solved? Brilliant. Yeah, because it's not about me. It's it's not about me. It's about it's it's not about me. No, it's not Stuart. Honestly, the right not, answer. That is the right answer. Because it's not. It really, really isn't. It's it's not about me. It's about the families, and um, and that's what used to motivate me more than anything is giving justice to the families. So yeah, brilliant. If 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 other people can, because again, investigating murders isn't just about one person anyway. It's about a team. Yeah. Um. There are there there are a dozen or two of two dozen of us on a team. Um. So, yeah, if, if since I've left, someone has come along and with new evidence, brilliant. Perfect. Well, that pretty much sums up everything I've got to ask you there, Steve. Just a reminder, Stephen's book, Murder Investigation Team, you can see that on the YouTube video. I will link it in the description. It's out today. Well worth a punt on this. It's an absolutely fantastic book. Highly recommend it. And thanks for coming on. Any, any final words you'd like to say to the audience, myself, to yourself? No, just thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure. It's it's a funny thing because um, my my partner investigates murders. Um, my children are in the police. Um, a lot of my a lot of my social circle people don't want to don't want to hear me talking about murder. So <laughs> when I get to come on and, and talk about these sort of things, it's, it's it's nice. It's one of those things I could talk about for hours and hours. Yeah, cool. Well, I won't keep you. Much, I've nearly had you for an hour and a half now. I won't keep you much longer. But uh, it's, I could, but I would because I'm generous. Yeah. <laughs> it's Thanks. been a pleasure having you on and for everyone listening. I hope you enjoyed that and check out Stephen's book. And until next time, cheerio. Cheerio.